Hey, hi. Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is Lee Dong, a writer and director making his feature debut with Stealing School, a dark comedy starring Celine Tsai as an Asian-Canadian student accused of plagiarism and forced to prove her innocence before an academic tribunal one week before graduation. The film premiered on Vimeo On Demand last Friday, and it's available on digital and on demand as of today. Lee picked Ocean's Eleven, Steven Soderbergh's 2001 remake of the 1960 Lewis Milestone picture where the Rat Pack swanned around Las Vegas planning a casino heist. The premise is the same, more or less, with a guy named Danny Ocean getting a bunch of pals together to take down multiple casinos, but Soderbergh and screenwriter Ted Griffin reworked and resuscitated the property into a glorious entertainment. You got George Clooney, Brad Pitt, Matt Damon, Carl Reiner, Shaubo Quinn, Elliot Gould, Bernie Mac, Eddie Jemison, Scott Kahn, Casey Affleck, Andy Garcia, and Julia Roberts, and they're clearly having the best time and letting us enjoy every second of it. Seriously, if you haven't seen it, you're really missing out. This is someone else's movie. Ocean's Eleven is, and I'm going to say it, you can agree with me, you can disagree with me, Soderbergh's most enjoyable movie. It's, it's a... I know, it's a, it's a really hot take. Um, <laughs> you know, some people would say Traffic, Aaron Brockovich, whatever. I, I just think that you can throw Ocean's Eleven on in whatever mood you are, whatever state you are in your life, and you will enjoy it. Um, Ocean's Eleven is just like a, it's almost like comfort food in the heist genre. I don't know. That's Would you agree with that? That's not a bad way to put it. Um, I, it is... It does have my single favorite shot in his entire filmography. So yeah, I mean, I'm inclined to agree on the on the comfort. And food. which shot is that? It's it's not the Bellagio shot, is it? No, no, those are pretty. Um, but no, it's the shot outside. I guess it's a restaurant or a club or somewhere in L.A. It's when um, it's when Danny goes to pick Rusty up, and Rusty's running his poker game, and yeah. we have a round table of everybody who was on the WB in 1999 yeah. 2000 which is which is a great yeah. weird little cameo but the shot of the two of them leaving the club yeah yeah and yeah. everybody swarming you know Joshua Jackson and Topher Grace I was going to bring that up I was going to bring that that scene up as well um I think that like movies try to portray life in so many different ways but they whenever they try to portray um a struggle in the way that making a movie is a struggle, they do it really well. I've always held in my deepest of hearts that Ocean's Eleven is a movie about making a movie. It's not a movie about a heist, about Robin Bay. It's a movie about making a movie. Okay. You can like, draw a direct line between George Clooney, director, uh, Rusty, the AD, um, Don Cheadle, the cinematographer, like the two uh, Mormon guys, like the, the PAs or whatever. Yeah, um, yeah I, I just think that like, it's such a joyful experience to make a movie as I've been lucky enough to experience. But um, I think that Ocean's Eleven is secretly or maybe not so secretly about the joy of making a movie. It's a bunch of ragtag people pulling off a job, essentially, that they have, frankly, have no right in pulling off yeah. uh, from the beginning. Yeah. Huh. And they do actually make a little movie. I mean, there is there is pre-taped footage involved in the they heist, do, yeah, right? Yeah, you're so, right. They, they actually make a movie. That's, that's actually true. I didn't think of that. There but is yeah, a result there. That's true, yeah. It's funny. The one I always pull yeah. up is uh, is Nolan's Inception, uh, which is about you yeah. know, convincing people to buy into your story and then executing it at a certain level. Uh, and but it, it, Inception's, like, Inception's great on a level where it's like, no, no, where 
basically it's saying like no no the audience does not believe this but we're gonna make the audience believe this yeah yeah yeah. which is actually another level of filmmaking that um that i am not ready to discuss but chris (laughs) nolan really went there he was like chris nolan was like no no i know you don't believe this but i'm gonna make you believe it i thought that was really interesting in inception yeah Um, yeah but you're right inception is also kind of has some heisty elements would you say sure yeah yeah right yeah but guns chasing cars yeah bond movie armies showing up in the third act but but it's not as much fun right like it doesn't because it because it's a chris nolan film and it has to have all this heavy uh, backstory and and you know the dead wife stuff and and the moral yeah the moral question <laughs> the dead wife stuff. it's his thing the dead wife stuff it's his thing I'm so I'm so glad Soderbergh cut the dead wife stuff <laughs> from his movie because that would have dragged down Ocean's Eleven uh, tremendously I I recently looked at Ocean's Eleven very carefully to the point where I looked at the script or the last shooting script that I could find oh yeah. Yeah, and I I saw the stuff that Soderbergh cut out, and he cut out a lot, um, and it seemed like every cut that he made was accurate, was the right move. He was basically in the script. They would try to explain certain plot points in dialogue. Oh yeah, and Soderbergh was like, "No, we can just shoot that and not have the dialogue." And it was really interesting to see like all this, all these like complicated plot points where people are talking about it. But so, they're not in the final movie because Soderbergh was like, no, we'll just shoot it. It's fine. Um, which I thought was really like a nice lesson in directing for me. Yeah, yeah I, I think the thing I and we, we I think we talked about this briefly. We spoke yesterday on, a, on an unrelated thing. Um, and I think yeah. I mentioned like I basically recently just decided that there's no point in pretending like Soderbergh is my favorite American filmmaker. And period. Like, He's living amazing. Have you seen have you seen Schizopolis? Sk- That's a true that's a deep cut. Oh yeah, That's no, a deep cut. I saw that at TIFF. I saw it. For, I, I interviewed him for that actually. I think that might have been the first time we oh. met. Um, Bro, I love Schizopolis more than any moviegoer should actually love <laughs> Schizopolis. It is very, very weird. It's the kind of thing where it's like you're not making any money off of this movie, but you did it for yourself. And uh, yeah, no. Um, but yeah, no. Ocean's Eleven felt like like a, he was trying to do. Uh, he like picked a genre, like the heist movie if you can count that as a genre. Sure. And he was like, I'm just going to try to do this as best I can, as the most pure form of the heist movie that I can. And he did it, but he did it in his own way, obviously, because he can't stop himself from being Steven Soderbergh. Yeah. His, the, it's, yeah. it's amazing. His joy in process, right? Like one of, his, one of his running things is the way institutions break down and how uh, individuals are responsible for maintaining the social contract like that i think that's the overarching theme of his entire career really starting with marriages and infidelity and sex lies and going all the way through to oh my, what he's doing now like it's i it's always about people betraying each other and by by virtue of so of doing so it's betraying the larger system and i agree i i think there's a certain amount of um i don't know what the right word is but like scrampiness you know like just like these sort of almost underdog figures even though they're not really underdogs but they seem like they feel like they're underdogs yeah um i guess that's that's a lot of movies to be honest sure, but sure. um Soder- soderbergh does it really really well and um you know george Clooney and brad pitt were the literal biggest movie stars on earth at the time that this movie came out so to make them seem like they had a challenge ahead of them was 
was something that Soderbergh probably found a little bit interesting. Yeah. Yeah. While still letting them be like dapper and gorgeous and and perfectly put together and unflappable. The uh, were they perfectly put together, Norm? Were they perfectly put together? Oh, I think they were. I mean, that's part of the disguise, I, right? Like it's part of the skin that listen, they're wearing. I I went back and I actually looked up in preparation for this podcast uh, what year Night the Roxbury was released. It was released in 1998. Yeah. It was three years before Ocean's Eleven. So in Night of the Roxbury, they were essentially making fun of dudes wearing shiny shirts. Like that's that was like a gag. Sure. And in Ocean's Eleven, Brad Pitt's like, no, no, I'm going to wear the shiny shirt and I'm going to pull it off somehow. It just seemed very, very weird. I don't know what he was trying to do. I It was an interesting decision on on all parts but like i don't know fashion in the early 2000s was weird but i was just like was Soderbergh making fun of the shiny shirts or was he being like no no this is actually what we're doing in 2001 people are wearing shiny yeah. shirts i don't know what did you think i think pitt was making fun of it and Soderbergh was letting you him. think pitt was making- yeah because this is also two years okay. after fight club where he played tyler durden who is dressed out like that is true right? that's a great point so that's a great point what, yeah, yeah what you're point. seeing is with with brad pitt is a guy in full control of his image and it's something that nobody ever really gives him credit for but you know he is he's a beautiful man he like just just pure he on is. pure aesthetics in that period from about 92 Straight through, what was Thelma Louise, 90, 91? From then to about 2005, he just, he's aged into a really interesting look, and he's still very handsome, but if you were to... I I agree. Yeah, if you were to build a human in a box, that would come out. Uh, But like, I mean, like, I'm just saying, if we knew our woman friend back in 2001, and we were like, if you saw this guy wearing this shirt in the club, would you laugh him out of the club? Or would you actually think he was good looking? I don't know what the answer is to that. I think I think you would laugh him out of the club, like no matter how good looking you are, those shirts were ridiculous, in my opinion. But I also I think know. that's strategic because he doesn't want to be taken seriously so he can scam people. I think Rust, like Rusty is dressing that way consciously, and Pitt knows yeah. it. Pitt knows his guy. I mean, this isn't too far off from, uh, I mean, Fight Club was two years earlier, but then there was 12 Monkeys in 95, and <laughs> California the year before that, where he's just purely scuzzy, and 12 Monkeys, he's running around in a tuxedo. Do you think he just went, he went up to Soderbergh, and he was like, listen, I think this guy wears really shiny shirts, and that's his whole thing. And Soderbergh Brooks like, all right, man, do whatever you want to do. I, like, I, I'm not going to say no to Brad. <laughs> yeah, well, but I also think Soderbergh trusts these people, right? Like, he, if you're going to work with him, he doesn't take a lot. He doesn't do a lot of flyers. Like, he doesn't take chances with people. He knows what he's getting, and I think he's. It's weird that unless I'm missing something really obvious, the the, the three Oceans films are the only films he's made with Pitt, right? He hasn't collaborated with him the way he did with Clean. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, and I think Pitt. Is, yeah, Pitt just loves the challenge of working with people who will both let him do what he wants and also steer him in a certain direction. Well, I want to ask you about this because one of the, personally, I think one of the appeals of the film is that it feels like a joke. It feels like a joke that we, the audience, are in some way in on. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's the beauty of so this film specifically. In the, in the scene, in the shot that you mentioned, um, Topher Grace is swarmed by people and brad pitt and george Cooley are walking out yeah. and no one cares yeah, like yeah. that's funny in a way that we live in the real world we see that as hilarious but like in the world of the movie it makes sense because they're not brad pitt and george Cooley. but 
it's like it's like a joke that Soderbergh's showing us. What do you think? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I think it's it's part of the fantasy, right? Like, imagine a world where George Clooney and Brad Pitt in two thousand and one can wander around unmolested and, yeah. and underestimated. And then, of course, he doubles down on it in Ocean's Twelve with the Julia Roberts thing, which is also oh my just, god, incredible, yeah. incredible. There, I, I I could go. I almost chose Ocean's Twelve for this uh, podcast, but I thought that was like too crazy. Well, we can but, um, we can range through the whole trilogy if you want to. I mean, I think there's definitely stuff in there. And well, well, like another another thing about the inside joke thing is when George Clooney joins the poker game. I don't know if you caught this, but he's have when Brad Pitt walks in, he's having a throwaway line where George Clooney says, "Well, that's really difficult to transition from TV to film, yeah, yeah, isn't yeah. it?" And Topher Grace goes, "Not for me, dude." And it's hilarious because obviously George Clooney did transition from TV to film. Yeah, yeah. And, and like, it feels like Soderbergh saying to us, like, this is hilarious, right? Like, you're in on the joke. You, the audience, uh, are in on this uh, silly thing that I'm doing. Yeah. Right? Well, And that's what I like about Soderbergh as a filmmaker, too. He's perfectly happy to show you the, the inner workings, the nuts and bolts. Uh, his That's what Scotopolis is all about, how you, how you make a film, how you make a Godardian narrative that twists around on itself <laughs> oh, and still let the audience enjoy themselves. Um, he's just such a... He's such a pleasurable filmmaker. And then, you know, something like Logan yeah. Lucky, where none of it really matters yeah. and it's all going to be fine and nobody cares but you can still enjoy the ride i really like it i'm not sure logan lucky uh makes sense on a second <laughs> viewing which i haven't i haven't done i'm a soderbergh by the way i should say i'm a soderbergh uh super fan uh he is my favorite filmmaker he was the one who made me look at film in a different way if i may digress a little bit please in solaris do you remember the soderbergh solaris oh yeah Actually, I was just talking to someone about that. Yeah, um, it comes up. It's um, the one that I keep humping because I think it's the only one of his films, maybe that in Kafka, that isn't available in HD anywhere. You just can't find a Blu-ray. Of it. <laughs> wow. Ka- well, Kafka, I understand. Kafka was, yeah. Yeah. But uh, in the when I when I was in high school, I wanted to be uh, a novelist oh, yeah. because I thought writing I thought writing was the only true art. I didn't think of filmmaking as an art. Okay. And I, I remember sitting in Solaris, the Steven Soderbergh Solaris, and, you know, I'll, I'll go through Solaris real quick. Um, Solaris is about George Clooney. His wife kills herself, and George Clooney goes to a space station to a planet that recreates his wife from his memory, right? Yep. That's basically the plot. So we learn about George Clooney's wife from flashbacks, and we see George Clooney's wife made from his memories in the space station and they look completely different in the flashbacks uh the wife was kind of like scowly kind of like a hot mess her hair wasn't very well done and she was just like not a very pleasurable screen presence but in the 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 version of his wife that's recreated from the alien planet she's like beautifully lit every hair in place just the perfect beauty and i was watching the movie and i remember thinking to myself man it's almost as if like we remember people as better than they are and i was like oh my god we totally (laughs) remember people as better than they are and that was the moment that i realized that filmmaking was a true art because this guy was able to um activate a a very true a a deep truth about humanity what it means to be human Without dialogue, without words, he just did it with story and images, and it blew my mind. Yeah. And that was the moment that I realized that uh, filmmaking was like as much of an art as not writing novels. Yeah, and that's a great place to learn that lesson, too, because if you suddenly discover that Soderbergh... Because, uh, again, I think he is unparalleled at that 
actual like what would you call it montage of actually creating relationships yeah. in space through editing and memory yeah. and, and emotion i mean just the, like just his decision to use what 40 seconds of a of a ken loach movie from 1963 at the end of the limey and just break your heart open it's oh, um, it's genius I, I and i've interviewed him enough over the years to like to know it's it's consistent like it's he doesn't luck into this stuff he he yeah said, he like, knows he, what he's doing yeah, he, he said he didn't think the yeah, limey yeah. would work until he took it apart and put it back together again and, like there's that great commentary track with yeah. Len dobbs where they argue over the meaning of the film and it, oh my god yeah. One of the great, one of the great director commentaries, or you know, commentaries in, in oh, history. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like just really tense the whole way through. <laughs> yeah, it's fantastic. Just fantastic. And then they work together again. But what I was going to say is that when you see him do something that's as purely linear and candy colored and fun as Ocean's Eleven, it's not a dumb movie. Like he's not taking his brain away and and he's still applying his entire skill set to it he's just doing it in the service of this really fun uh, inclusive welcoming film where you just get to play i remember when roger ebert um reviewed the movie he he wrote something like and i'm paraphrasing but he was like you know even classically trained pianists need to bust out the honky tonk once in a while on the piano yeah and and I thought that was a really funny line when I was, you know, 17 or 18 or whatever. But I, as I've grown, I was like, I actually don't agree with that. I think this is like an excellent exercise in craft, um, like very precise, like really, really trying to honor the heist genre, if you want to call it that, um, in in ways that are very ingenious, not really making fun of it. And, and really like, I don't know, I, I thought it was like a very respectful way to make that kind of movie i didn't think it was honky-tonk i didn't think he was just like having fun i mean obviously he was having fun but i thought that he took it very seriously yeah you know what i mean well i don't think he could throw something away like i don't think he could just sort of goof around and even when he is enjoying himself i think he's still going to make sure the lighting is right and go for the color timing that he wants and make sure everybody else is giving a real performance i don't think anybody is slacking in this Right. Um, right. He told me once that these are his versions of superhero movies. They're the closest he can come to a Marvel movie, where you're just watching. They are franchises. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's a franchise, yeah. but it's also a celebration of like uber mention of people who are specifically phenomenally gifted at what they do. And I think that's why well, they're so much fun because we're allowed to enjoy all of that. And the movie draws attention to the fact that these are the biggest movie stars on earth Mm -hmm. and that he just, I I don't know if it necessarily draws attention to the fact that he just won the Oscar for traffic, like, you know, four months ago. Um, I don't, I don't think he knew he was going to win the Oscar for traffic, but I think it draws attention to the fact like, no, no. Yeah. These are like characters, but they're also like literally George Clooney and Brad Pitt. And like, we should laugh at these scenarios that we put George Clooney and Brad Pitt into. Yeah. Um, and Julia Roberts as well, obviously, who's fantastic in the movie. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's the old... Hitchcock used to do it, right? He would cast an actor for their persona and then turn it against them. They'd kill them off in the first act. Sure, yeah. yeah. I'm thinking of, like, <laughs> Cary Grant in North by Northwest, fumbling through everything, yeah. um, just being hapless instead of the suave determined symbol of Hollywood capability that we all assumed he was, uh, although he was always good at comedy. But the the sense that 
this narrative that in, in Ocean's Eleven that you are seeing, you know, do you want to watch George Clooney in a nice suit run around a casino? We will we'll do that for two hours, but we'll also insert just enough pathos so that you understand that he longs to win this woman back and that she's doing the bantering and he refuses that, that scene at the table. Oh, where, my God. Yeah, where she just she's refuses. Got, she, that scene at the dinner table, she is landing haymakers on George Clooney. Like, the dialogue in that scene was very... Uh, on, upon repeat viewings, I was like, this is incredible. Where he's like, um, you know, they say I paid my debt to society. Funny, I didn't get a check. Like, she's just knocking him out with these one-liners. And I thought that was, like, just really great dialogue. And Julia Roberts, I guess she must have been the biggest movie star on earth at this point. Yeah, or yeah, the biggest right female that. movie star on earth. Also, it's, just it's, yeah. just coming off Aaron Brockovich with Soderbergh, just won the Oscar for yeah, that. Yeah, that's true. Right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. So it was just like, yeah, she was, I, I remember not being, not thinking that scene was that interesting or important the first time I saw it. But upon repeat viewings, I was like, the dialogue here is, is awesome. Yeah. She is just like really trying to hurt his feelings and she's successful, yeah. I would say. Yeah. Well, and that's what makes it, yeah. su- well, sweet, I guess is probably the wrong word, but that's what makes it touching is that he just takes it. Like he's not trying. Yeah at all to yeah, impress her she is smacking him ba- back over and over again what was the other one um does he make you laugh he never made me cry he made me cry yeah, yeah. Um, and and also and, like uh you're a liar and a thief i don't do that anymore uh lie steal or something is like lie no no steal yeah. lie i don't i only lied about being a thief and just like all these like really really cool they almost sound stilted and like very writerly, you know, yeah, you know, I'm like sure, when yeah. you write something that when you write something that like sounds really clever in writing, um, but but they're delivered really, really well and they feel really natural. And I think it was Julie Roberts and George Clooney, you know, they were the two biggest movie stars on Earth at that time. And they had really great chemistry, I would say. I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I don't know how it would rank against um, the George Clooney, Jennifer Lopez uh, chemistry, but um, yeah. Well, I mean, it I feels know. very much like a commentary, or at least a reflection of that, right? Of the because the yeah. the great um, cocktail bar scene in Out of Sight, or the hotel bar scene in Out of Sight, when you have that sort of incredible chemistry and just just sheer electricity between two actors, and you and yeah. he doesn't try to recreate it because I, I think that's intentional. I think the the, the his like Clooney's entry into that scene feels almost like an echo, and then they just don't yeah. go there. They he absolutely refuses to give right. us that. I think you're right. I think you're right. I think um, Soderbergh was like, "I know what you're expecting, but I'm going to give you something a little bit different." Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, if I had one gripe, if I if I don't really have a lot of gripes in this movie, but if I had one, I don't know how you feel about this. I and this is something that you kind of have to do for this kind of movie. Was the the villain, uh, the oh, Andy Garcia, uh, Andy Garcia, the Andy Garcia character? So here's the thing that I notice about franchises: is the first movie in a franchise, you can't make the villain be too showy. You just can't. Okay. Um, and Andy Garcia was not. He was both scary, but he was not, and he was serious, but he was not. I I would I would have preferred a better villain like in oceans 12 the night fox was a much much richer better villain um but andy garcia i don't know i didn't think i didn't feel like he was on the george Clooney's level what do you think well i can tell you my theory 
I think the reason Terry Bennett isn't a monster, although he like he can, he hides it, he conceals it. Um, I think yeah. the reason it works is for me is because we have to believe that Tess could be with him. We have to believe that there's a legitimate reason that she's with him. And like you're well, you're well, saddled with it by the plot that Danny has to get her back. At what, it never what, was believable to me. Yeah. It never felt believable to me. It, as Zerga said, she's too tall for him. You know, <laughs> as we all know. <laughs> She's too tall for him, and very, very cheap shot in a man's height. By the way, I don't appreciate that. But um, yeah, no, I it it never felt like he was the right villain, or that he was strong enough to battle George Clooney's character in that movie. You know, what yeah, I mean? he just has to be enough of a dick that we want him to get taken down. And you know what? In the script that I read, he was even more of a dick. Oh yeah, a lot of. Yeah, he had a lot more dialogue where he was very dickish, I suppose, is what I would say. And a lot of that got taken out because I guess Soderbergh felt like that wasn't needed. But he was a lot more uh, unlikable, I would say. Yeah. Interesting. I should read one of these scripts. Yeah, yeah. I was really surprised. Yeah, yeah. I was really surprised. Yeah. By the way, I've seen the movie like five times uh, by the time I read the script. As I was reading the script, I had no idea what was going on. It just, like, it almost doesn't matter, right? Like, it was describing things that were happening, and I was like, I don't care. It's almost like the heist doesn't matter. Because, I don't know, would you say the movie is about the heist, or is the movie about a bunch of ragtag people coming together to pull off a job? Certainly, we don't spend a lot of time watching the mechanics of it, and if we did, it would spoil the fun. The um, the heist is incidental in as much as there's really no doubt that it's going to be pulled off. And I think the other thing that liberates him is that he's making a remake. So we know where it's going to go. And it's not That's the kind true. of movie where everybody's going to get shot in the face at the end. It's just not. I, I should admit that I have not seen the original. Oh, you don't need to. I've only seen Ocean's Eleven. I love Soderbergh. I just want that to be the only uh, Ocean's heist movie that exists. I'm not going to go back and watch uh, the Michael Caine version. Is that what it is? Oh, like... no, it's Frank Sinatra. It's uh, Sinatra, Dean Martin... Michael Caine is the Italian job. I have a hard time believing it's going to be better. Oh, it's you know? not. Uh, it's, it's really okay. <laughs> not. It's, it's kind of interesting. I, I would recommend sometime when you're bored out of your mind, take a look at it just to see what Soderbergh did differently, which is everything. Um, yeah. He, the one thing he kept was the sort of... The structure is very similar, but okay, that's okay. about it. What the original Ocean's Eleven is is an excuse for Sinatra and, and the Rat Pack to hang out in Vegas while they were performing. You, you could you could exactly argue that the purpose of Ocean's Eleven, the new one, is an excuse for Brad Pitt and George Clooney and Matt Damon and Andy Garcia and Julia Roberts to hang out. Oh, yeah. You can exactly argue that. And that is, that is the quality that the Soderbergh film has that the original doesn't, which is what's fascinating about oh. it. So what, okay. what the original Ocean's Eleven was literally produced to give them something to do while they were playing a casino at night. They were just booked in a Las Vegas residency. <laughs> I, did, I did not know yeah, that. Yeah, and it was yeah, like, let's make amazing, a movie yeah. also. And you can really tell that people aren't into it and they kind of want to go home and they're all a little tired and there's one i think there's one shot where it's really clear that dean martin is falling asleep in his chair just because he's, he was up late <laughs> the night before performing and you know most of that was an act he wasn't really drunk on stage and all of that but you can actually see tired entertainers in the well, original well film. in contrast to that wouldn't you say you could feel the joy of everyone in this movie the joy of making the movie like everyone seems like they're just having a great time delivering their lines you know doing their job would, would you agree with that oh absolutely I mean it is it's just it, it's the uh, somebody once I can't remember who it might have even been Ebert 
Uh, but somebody described the Austin Powers films as a party that you're not invited to. Like everybody there <laughs> is having a blast, but yeah, we're just yeah, wa- yeah. we're just going. Yeah, I guess that was fun. I, I suppose that's entertaining. Yeah. This movie, yeah, yeah this yeah. movie gives you a seat. You are invited to be part of the group. You you get to feel that you know yeah. you could probably be at a, 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 a craps table two over and watch these guys. It really does feel like we're in on the joke. Like, Soderbergh kind of lets us in on it or, you know, does his best to let us in on it. Like, we're laughing at how, I guess, yeah, I guess that's the best way to describe it. Like, it feels like you're in on the joke as an audience. It doesn't feel too stilted or pretentious on on his part. Soderbergh just wants you to feel the, the pleasure that everyone is taking in doing this. And, you know, like, they're all... Yeah, they're all you know, like they're betting on uh, whether or not somebody can pull something off. Jen's gonna short the landing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and then but that beautifully sets up the bit towards the end where he gets hurt and has to do it anyway, and we get to bet on whether or not he'll make it. Like everything is part of the pleasure. It's all enjoyment is compulsory. You are you are invited into this world, and you're just allowed to take pleasure in all of it. I always think in filmmaking it's a challenge to do basically uh, essentially try to do a trope uh, in a good way, in an original or interesting way. Sure. So I don't know if you've seen the Rick and Morty episode where they – it's about the, a heist. Oh, the heist. Of, yeah, sure. Yeah, the entire episode is uh, Rick trying to round up a crew and the – and like – like it's making fun of heist movies uh, where like you round up the crew and somebody says, you son of a bitch, I'm in, yeah. right? It's incredible. It's so funny. And Soderbergh's like, all right, I got to have a scene where I'm rounding up a crew. Like that has to be in the heist movie. And I thought that he did that so, so well and so interesting and in a way that, you know, was very him. Um, but yeah, doing a trope like that is something that I do not envy at all as a filmmaker. Like, to try to do something like that in an original and funny way is, I don't know, I wouldn't even know where to start. Yeah, it's, I think it's, it's both harder than it sounds and easier than it sounds because our brains are wired to accept that story, to, yeah. to go for that yeah, narrative. Right. But he also finds ways to, it's the, it's the, the purity of introduction, just the, the way that everyone is given that tiny little moment where, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. you get Basher in his backstory, you get uh, yeah. you get Ruben at his at his table, you know, at his at his outside breakfast yeah. table, the the, yeah. the 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 largesse of this man who yeah. definitely speaks to an older generation. And then that becomes a thing in Ocean's thirteen too, where certain actors yeah. became um, well, older and therefore the movie had to acknowledge it with and with with both Elliot Gould and Carl Reiner as Saul there's just this this sense that we're watching these guys do the one last job thing even though that's not the point of it right like this while, is while the character while the character is saying all right man one last job yeah. you know like I'll do it which is kind of like another thing where it's like you're in on like it's weird meta joke if you would call it that oh, yeah. i don't know i don't know what to call yeah. it yeah yeah uh, even if it isn't fully meta in the way that some of his other or the way that ocean's 12 is um you do get this this sense that you could be watching something that is one dimensional right like there is you right. could take absolute superficial pleasure in this movie because it's fun and it's pretty and everybody's yeah. wearing great clothes yeah. and it's just it's just a really well made movie but yeah it rewards additional um, engagement and investment. Uh, just that little. We haven't even mentioned. We haven't. You mentioned his name. But we haven't really talked about what Matt Damon is doing. But like this guy is 
he's effectively the audience surrogate. He feels outclassed. He, he doesn't know who he's who he's supposed to be. Like his dad was really good at this, but he doesn't know who he is. We we would be like that too. Like with these surrounded by these people, we'd feel like he's sort of an audience proxy where things have to be explained to him, but theoretically explained to the audience. Sure. Like he's sort of an audience proxy. I I liken him on a movie like as the supporting young actor who thinks he should have a much bigger part, sure. but you know he's not getting it. But, you know, he thinks that he can do the lead role, but, you know, no one's letting him do it. I, I just I, I really think that this is a movie about making a movie. That's just my personal. Theory. No, it's a good theory. Um, so in that in that scenario, that's what Matt Damon is. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no. Yeah, yeah you're right. Yeah. You're right. And the film also acknowledges that he's kind of annoying that way. Like he is the, the obnoxious kid yeah. brother with the, just that scene with Saul. Right. It's like uh, get in the fucking yeah. house where it's just. Yeah. This is time. Yeah, it's yeah. time to actually do the job. It's time to, to be professional. And there is yeah. no sense that even when, you know, like Casey Affleck and Scott Kahn are fighting, it's all performative, even when it's just the two of them. Just the way they're introduced tells you not to take them too seriously, but it also shows you yeah. that they're resourceful and they're clever and there's a little more going on. It's the whole thing. It's like at no point are we being conned. The movie, that's what I yeah. like about it. The movie is just really clean about presenting things to you us could, you could argue in the third act you were being conned a little bit as the audience you could argue that you were being misled on um on a plot on a plot point you know you were basically led to believe a certain thing and then they flipped it on you but that's also a trope of a heist movie so you can't really blame them for doing that yeah exactly but you could argue you, you could argue that you were getting conned a little bit in the third well, act but as an audience that's member. the pleasure of it right you're buying into it the same way exactly, you're buying into exactly, the scene of Pitt exactly. and Clooney walking out of the club it's just, uh, it, it's what happens when you buy your ticket. Like, you know certain right. things are going to, you, you want these things to be delivered to you. Right. The weirdest thing about Ocean's Eleven is it's the one Soderbergh film that doesn't feel divisive at all. There's nobody who doesn't like it. Like, it's, That's true. it's just That's true. that people hated 12 at the time. Uh, I loved it. Yeah. I, I was. I love 12. I love 12. I was trying I'm so hard fan. to get people yeah, to understand it. And feels like, but it's stupid. It's like, no, it's great. It's tough. You just there's no way. You, there's no arguing through it. You just you either buy it or you don't. Yeah, twelve's uh, twelve's hard to get other people to like. Yeah. <laughs> I, I agree. With but you. the bait and switch of <laughs> it I is so it. yeah. It. The bait and switch is so pleasurable, and it gives Damon the showcase that he wanted in the first. Like Linus gets to step up, but he doesn't have yeah. any idea how to and. It's, I would say twelve was like an inside joke that we were not let into. The audience was not allowed on that inside joke. It just felt like their joke that no one else got to enjoy. Yeah. You know, off the top of my head, it felt yeah. to me like if you know, it's the it's the heist movie people would have expected from Soderbergh when before they saw Ocean's Eleven. Like if you heard he was doing this, it's like oh, it'll be weird and convoluted, and there'll be stuff in it that's kind of yeah. strange, and I'm sure it'll all make sense in the end. And that is actually what that movie is, but it's also just about the, you know, the heist is. That's the film where the, the audience gets conned. That's the film where the heist is played on us, right. because right. you want a big happy movie where everybody runs around picturesque locations. And well, that's that's the that's the thing that most people did not like about it was that. They felt con by the movie. Yeah. Like the real heist was not that interesting, and the audience was the one who got heisted. Yeah, I, I had a lot of friends who were like, "That was not good," <laughs> and I was like, "No, that's the joke. Like, it's the whole." Yeah, yeah I, it was hard. There, there is yeah. there is nothing in either of the other two movies. As much as I I love the shot in the first one, there is nothing in either of the other two films that makes me laugh as hard as that incredible 
cackle that comes out of Julia Roberts when she rounds the corner and meets Bruce Willis. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it's human, it, right? Yeah. Like, that's a moment where that's, that is the response that a regular person would have meeting a movie star they didn't expect to meet. And yeah. she's obviously mimicking the response that she's been given thousands of times yeah. in the real world. It's all that's all there, but it comes out as absolutely natural and real. And of course, yeah. Soderbergh being Soderbergh, he picked the one actor she co-starred with in fictional movies in The Player. I just incredible the idea that incredible stuff. Everybody yeah. was up for that joke. That makes me so happy. Yeah. Yeah, and you can see how that's kind of alienating when you get too deep in those sure. uh, meta weeds. I, I can understand why some people did not love it as much as we did. Yeah. Sure. I mean, yeah, that's the point. If you have to explain it that far to somebody, they're they're going to just turn off. But I still got it, and I love it, so I win. <laughs> you win. That's how yeah. that works. <laughs> I agree. Yeah. yeah, plus 12 has the, um, the Catherine Zeta-Jones runner, which is kind of weird and sweet, and... That's okay. I, I thought it was all right. Yeah. yeah. The Night Fox was the highlight of the 12. Like, you need a good villain. You need a good villain. Yeah, and, and he is. The Night Fox was excellent. Yeah, he's having a yeah. wonderful time, Vincent Cassell, just being yeah. just being ludicrous and European. I agree. I agree. Yeah. And it does strike me, too, that Ocean's 12 also builds on the last scene. It's not the last line of Ocean's 11, but one of the last things Tess says is Rusty needs a girl, or we got to get Rusty a girl. Yeah. Yeah. And so... You know, the sequel does fulfill all of the things that need to be fulfilled in as much as Ocean's Eleven doesn't need a sequel at all. But if you're going to make another one, here's all the stuff that we said we could take off the list. I mean, yeah, it was a yeah, it was an interesting exercise in sequel or making fun of sequels, whatever you want to call it. Um, it is an interesting exercise in the sequel genre, if if you can call it that. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I I haven't I haven't gone back and thought about it too much, but yeah, I I'm a I'm an Ocean's Twelve lover as well, which not many people are, as as you probably know. Yeah. Oh yeah. And thirteen, I guess we can deal with that a little bit. I I like it. It's yeah. fine. Nice colors. Yeah. You know, it's uh, like, uh, it seems like again, it's one of those things where offered the opportunity to go play with his friends one more time. Soderbergh said sure, yeah. and then just walked away from the whole thing. It feels like the the definitive ending. Like they don't want to do an Ocean's fourteen. I agree. I agree. I agree. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. and we could talk about Ocean's eight, but uh, I got nothing to say really. Uh, not much. Gary Ross, not not that interesting to me. You know what I mean? Yeah. It just it. I think if nothing else, it shows you just how important Soderbergh is to these movies. I agree. And completely yeah. agree. Also, I think if you're going to make a movie that's cast with all women you should get a woman to direct it because the rhythms will be better you just there's clearly a 100%. space there that isn't working a hundred percent a hundred percent yeah i i was not a huge fan of ocean's eight but you know i i see what they're trying to do you know um yeah yeah, yeah it's just one of those franchise it's a free yeah it is it's a franchise it's one of those movies where I, you know what i like everybody in it and i wish they got a better picture and if they want to try again with an oceans nine i'm i'm willing to i'll go back yeah, i'll go back yeah. i like those people but um yeah, no, that's that's where you end up, right? You start with such a high of Ocean's Eleven, and then you just I you agree. can feel the yeah. studio chasing the dragon for twenty years trying to catch up to it. Yeah, you can feel Soderbergh running away as well, yeah. running away from the dragon as much as he can. Yeah, yeah, and he is just again Logan Lucky is kind of a companion piece in that you know it's a Southern fried process movie about a heist, but. Sure. Yeah, as you say, it doesn't really make sense. It doesn't really matter. And we're at no point in, in any 
uh, at no point in that film are we really invested in the heist working out, but I, I'm just sort no. of fascinated by watching the nuts and bolts. And there is, there's a moment in Logan Lucky where I'm positive Soderbergh left in a blown take. Like just Channing Tatum hangs up a phone and, and Riley Keough looks at him and he just giggles a bit. And there's a moment, yeah, and there's a moment like that in Ocean's Eleven too, which I only noticed this time through. The last time I watched it, there's just there's a little bit of a thing that Brad Pitt does that makes me think it's a flubbed line or something. I can't even remember when it was, but I just I immediately thought, oh, Logan Lucky, and really? yeah, I'll have to go back and look for it. It's somewhere. Well, I gotta say, I did that. I did that in my when I made my movie, Stealing School. I, I that happened as well. There was a flubbed line, but we just left it in because it felt very natural. Someone was trying to say something and they messed up, and then they said the thing that they meant to say. And me and the editor was like, "Let's just leave that in. That's that looks great. You know, it seems very natural." Yeah, yeah. I, people, as as you can clearly hear from me, people don't always speak in straight lines. It's yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. There is yeah. there's a there's plenty of room in movies for you know perfect clip delivery and in a mid Atlantic accent and to remind yeah, us of screwball yeah. comedies of the '40s. But yeah, I, people stumble, people stammer. People forget. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I I think as a screenwriter, and I I don't want to talk about Ocean's Twelve too much, but in Ocean's Twelve, like there's a line where George Clooney, people don't know how old George Clooney is, That's right. and he looks at like he looks at uh, Casey Affleck, he's like, "Let me ask you something," and then he turns to John Cheadle, or no, he, yeah. he says to John Cheadle, like, "Let me ask you something." No, let me ask you something. Uh, how old am I? And like those little things are like the hardest things to write for me personally, because they don't move the plot forward at all. They are just like little character things that are so true and so interesting and so funny, but they don't add to the story very much at all. But it's like, I don't know. I, I just think I'm very impressed with that type of writing where it doesn't, it's not a part of the story, but it's a part of the characters. And, and it just, I don't know. Yeah. I'm always, I'm always taken aback whenever I see something like that in a movie. Yeah. And he's open to it, I think, like more than most filmmakers. Oh. And, and even though he is yeah, a total control freak, uh, you know, he shoots his, his own movies, he cuts his own movies, although he didn't cut Ocean's yeah. Eleven. That was still Stephen Marion. Um, but he just, he has room for humanity and, and these weird little moments of character from actors he trusts. Yeah. I, I just, yeah. he's just such a, a fascinating talent. Um, I'm going to drop one more name. I promise this will be the last one. John yeah. Hodgman. Do it. Uh, when John Hodgman did yeah. the podcast, he told a story about being on the Nick and yeah. prepping for this big long speech and only being shot. Uh, I know this. Yeah, only being shot. I from think the I back. know the story. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. Um, Soderbergh. Because while he was shooting the the scenes where they're shooting him from the back, he realized that Soderbergh wasn't going to shoot him from the front. And all this yeah. prep was for nothing, and it doesn't matter because when you see the scene, it's exactly how it should work. It, he does this in Ocean's Eleven as well. I, I noticed this last night when I was rewatching it. Um, in the scene where Dan, uh, Danny and Benedict meet for the first time in the restaurant, they're kind of having this tense conversation about is Danny staying at the hotel, whatnot. It should, and if it was just like George Clooney and Andy Garcia, it would have been like kind of tense, but. If you notice in that scene, it the the camera's only on Tess. Yeah. And she's just watching back and forth like this dialogue that's going back and forth. And I thought that was really cool that it was like, oh, the scene's about her and she's trying to make her decision in, in terms of, you know, what who she wants to be with ultimately. Um, yeah, and I you know, 
as a lesser director, I probably would have put the camera on George Clooney and put the camera on Andy Garcia and let them duke it out. But um, yeah, but Soderbergh does things like that where he has a whole scene where someone has a big monologue and puts the camera on someone completely out of the scene. Um, yeah, and I, I, I heard he did that on The Nick as well. Um, yeah, and I'm trying to break down why he does that specifically um, because it always seems to be the right decision. Um, yeah. I'm still learning as a filmmaker, obviously, but yeah, I, I'm, it's always it's always striking when you see it. Yeah, I think it's just what amuses him, right? I mean, he finds it interesting, and so he can't not use it. Yeah, yeah, I guess so, yeah. yeah. I mean, I guess it's unexpected, definitely. It's super unexpected. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know why he does it, but I think he, it feels right. Yeah, oh, it, it almost always does with him. That's just why I keep coming back. Um, so to that end, I guess, uh, we've touched on it a little bit, but is there anything uh, of Ocean's Eleven that you personally have lifted or borrowed or referenced or outright stolen for your own work? Is there a piece of, of the film in your own creative DNA? Um, you know, like I said, I've always thought Ocean's Eleven is a movie about making movies and just putting the joy of making movies in some whatever genre you want to choose to throw it into. Sure. Um, I don't know. I, that's a that's an excellent question. I think there's always a joy or some pleasure, internal pleasure when you, when you and a group of ragtag people get together to do a job, whether that's to make a movie, to uh, pull off a plagiarism tribunal, in like in my movie, to do anything. And I think I tried to incorporate a little bit of that into the movie, where it's just a group of people who are trying to pull off a job essentially they, with their own agendas um yeah i i think from motions 11 that's the only thing i can pull yeah yeah unfortunately and also in Ocean's 11 i should say that jin oh jin yang the the chinese character only speaks mandarin he the entire movie he only speaks mandarin but brad pitt understands right. everything he says and the audience uh, doesn't and no one else understands in the movie understands but brad pitt understands and I think there's a little bit of that in my movie, Stealing School, where the people in academia speak about their theses and their their studies, whereas they all understand each other, but the audience is kind of left out and they don't really know what's happening. Um, and it sort of creates this comedic effect, I suppose. Yeah. Well, and that creates a sense of an exclusionary tier within academia that's like we can feel it right. even if the characters in the movie don't sense it. We can see the barriers they're putting up to entry. Yeah, and and I played it for laughs. I hope I hope it gets laughs. You know, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's so weird to not see these things with audiences anymore. It's just this. I'm looking forward to looking at Twitter. Uh, the Twitter reactions. It's gonna be great. Yeah. My thanks to Lee Dong, whose first feature, Stealing School, is available today on digital and on demand. Thanks also to Amy Saunders. She knows what she did. Lee's not on Twitter, but you can find Ocean's Eleven on Blu-ray and DVD from Warner Home Entertainment. It's also available on iTunes and Google Play. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com, where I'm writing about movies and hosting a bunch of podcasts. Go check them out. And you can find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at SomeoneElsesMovie.com. Our theme song is by The Last Year. If you like it or this show in general, say so. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or wherever you've been enjoying us. Every little bit helps. It truly does. 
And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network. I'm very partial to Jordan Heath Rawlings' The Big Story, which continues to be essential listening every weekday. Stay inside, watch movies, wear a mask. I'll see you next week. We'll be right back.